Well, we want to welcome you here. Um, boy, did we ever get the advertising at the 9 o'clock service this morning. That was great. Mark's sermon was like right on target with what we're doing in here. And uh, I hope that you listened and listened well to what he had to say about being winsome and yet about having an answer also, both the grace and the truth. That whole aspect that Mark covered this morning is exactly what we're all up to here. Hey, I want to welcome all of you because we've got a few new faces in the crowd this morning, and for that we're very grateful. My name is Mike, Mike Osborne. I'm teaching this class called, uh, it's called Explore. Every week we have a class in here for adults, and uh, we want to welcome you to get up and go to the restroom. And the restrooms are down the hall and to the right. We also have bagels and coffee. Feel free to go revisit the cafe as much as you want to here. But the class that we're working through right now is called Defending Your Faith Without Starting an Argument. And uh, it's simply a way of talking about apologetics. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then after we pray, I'll do a quick review for the benefit of those who haven't been here for a while. And then we're going to dive in today at part two of the question that we began last week. If you were here last week, the question we're working on is this. Why do you believe the Bible to be true and God's word instead of just a document that some human beings made up. So that's the question for today, and we're going to work on that in just a little while. First, an announcement or two. Here's announcement number one. We have a book table over there against the wall, thanks to Randy Bronson. Randy owns a number of these books here, and the reason for the book table is not that we're selling those books, unless, Randy, I don't think you're trying to sell your books, right? Oh, really? To worthy people. All worthy people, raise your hands. Okay. Well, I'll let Randy work that one out. But Randy is a guy who reads a lot, and he's got some books up there against the wall that if you're interested in the subjects that we're tackling in here, one or more of those books would be really helpful, particularly if you have a friend or a relative and you're trying to present the Christian response to their questions. Those books would really, really help. For instance, that big book called When Critics Ask is a book full of specific answers to questions about the Bible when somebody says, aha, there is an inconsistency. I found an error in the Bible. Well, that book will help you sort of walk through that whole issue and show you how to harmonize apparent inconsistencies because there are some apparent inconsistencies in the Bible. Let's be honest about that. They're apparent, though. They're not real. And, um, and the, the book over there will help you kind of walk through that. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two. On your table is a sheet of paper in which we're asking for a little more help with the things that you see going on out here in the cafe. Every week we have people who pick up food from Panera, who set it out, who make coffee, who serve, and who clean up afterwards. We're not asking for anybody to do all of those things. But what I would appreciate is if you could be willing to do one of those things every now and then, and you would be put on a schedule and rotating with a number of other people, so it might be once every six weeks or something like that, if you could kindly put your name on that sheet with your address or, or whatever it says. I think it says an email address. If you have email, great. If you don't, put a phone number. And honestly, we won't make it a burden. Uh, it's not that we want to work you to death. We just want a big enough team to where we don't have to keep asking the same people. And we've had some very faithful workers for like a year now. And we're just, we need to give them some relief. So you, if you'd be willing to be uh, some, re, what do you call that, reinforcements, that would be more than wonderful. Okay, so that's announcement number two. Uh, anybody else want to make an announcement since we've got the floor going right here? Okay, I don't see anybody. All right, we're going to bow for prayer, and then we will begin with uh, week three of defending your faith without starting an argument. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come together this morning, we want to, first of all, thank you again for your blessing in our lives. Thank you for our health. For the very fact that we're here this morning is a testament to your faithfulness. We thank you that your loving kindnesses never cease and that they are new every morning. 
We praise you for this church, Lord, where we are able to freely worship you and gather in your name. Lord, we pray today for our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world who do not have that luxury. And we ask you to give them courage today, give them persevering grace today. And we ask, Father, that you would look kindly upon those who oppress them and change their hearts so that they would be given mercy and grace. Father, we pray for the spread of the gospel today. We ask for our missionary friends throughout the world. There are many of them that you will keep them safe and protect them from Satan and his demons. We pray, Father, that you will bless them financially, bless their families, bless them with harmony with those with whom they work. And, Father, today we pray, too, for the church service that's going on in the next building. We pray that you will speak to the many gathered there. Be with the many children down at the end of the hall who are studying your word in Sunday school. And we pray for our own selves as we open your word and talk about a very important issue about the Bible. We pray, Father, that your, your Holy Spirit will come and be our teacher in this, in this room this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's get started. Now, I want to tell you at the outset today there, that this will be a full, full hour and two minutes. We're going to quit at 11.45. This is going to be really full. It's going to be really fast. And that is why the notes that I've given you this morning are real full. I mean, this is like how many pages? Six pages, I think, of notes. We're not going to cover every word of these notes. That's why I wanted to give you very full notes so you could take them home and study them on your own. Every class is not going to be like this one, okay? I'm going to give you a lot of information today, and so we're going to go pretty quickly. So let's begin with a little bit of review. Week one, if you weren't here the first Sunday, we learned what is apologetics. And we found out, and all of this stuff is right here on the screen here, uh, we found out what apologetics is. It means to give an answer about what you believe. It's, it's explaining your faith to other people. And a real important Bible verse is one that is from the book of First Peter, chapter 3. It says, always be prepared. And this Mark alluded to this verse in his sermon this morning. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So this class is all about helping us be prepared. But we're also not just learning answers to questions. Hopefully in this class we're going to learn how to answer people, as it says here, with gentleness and respect. Okay? Um, next slide. How do we do apologetics? We've learned that there are two basic ways that Christians over the centuries have tried to do apologetics. And one way is by the evidence approach, which we're going to be learning this morning. The evidence approach is inductive in nature, and it begins with the apologetic and builds a system of belief off of that. In other words, to the, evident, to the evidentialist, you have to understand a few things in order to believe. So this is the evidence approach, and, and this is basically giving answers to people when they ask you questions about your faith, knowing what you will say, and giving some substantiation for believing in Christ. But there is another school, and this one is the one that I tend to lean toward. I told you this last week. I have a little bit of a bias toward the presupposition approach. The presupposition approach is deductive reasoning. It begins with the system of belief and builds an apologetic off of that. In other words, according to the presuppositionalist, you have to believe in order to understand. And so the presupposition, let me just dwell on this to make sure everybody's acquainted with it. The presuppositionalist is going to say to a friend who questions him or her, he's going to say, you know, you already know that there's a God. In fact, go to the next slide. Oh, here it is. Here's the basis of presuppositionalists. They believe that every single person in the world is created in the image of God. God has set eternity in our hearts. This is what the Bible says. And so according to Romans chapter 1, every individual really deep down knows that there's a God. All right, now, on the basis of that presupposition that there is a God I believe in, He is a personal God, He has spoken to me, 
And furthermore, I believe that you also really deep down know that there's a God. Therefore, I'm going to approach you on that basis. So I don't need to feel like I have to give you a lot of evidences for God. Instead, I'm going to assume that really you know him anyway. And so I'm going to ask you a lot of questions to try to reveal where your worldview starts to break down. Look at this slide here. The presupposition of the unbeliever, he says, is that human beings are autonomous and everything happens by chance. That's what an unbeliever will say is his starting point. Or, or at least he acts as if that's his starting point. But you and I differ as believers, don't we? Because our presuppositions are that there is an infinite triune God. He is sovereign. He is personal and loving. And so the presupposition approach, go to the next slide, consists in having, number one, the right attitude. That is, when we approach these people, what we need to do is be sure to relax, be sure to be patient, be confident, be a good listener, be a friend, be ready to challenge, but, but you can relax because you're not trying to really convince him on the basis of all kinds of persuasive truths and proofs. Second, you then begin to ask this person questions. And we practiced this a little bit last week, and I'm going to have you practice it in just a few minutes at your table. But uh, two types of questions there are. First, there are open questions. When you ask a, a friend who wants to know more about you or your faith, you ask him some open questions, things like these. What do you think? Well, what do you believe? Tell me, how did you come to that point of view? Why do you say that? What do you mean? Why does that bother you? And how did you come to that point of view? After you've asked a few open questions, you can then move to some more pointed questions such as these. Why did you reach that conclusion? How do you know it's true? What's the source of your information? How well is that working for you? And what if you're wrong? Now, see, what's going on with this, I, I'm being trying to be very concise, but what's going on with this is that you're one-on-one -on -one in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe the way you believe. And in order to establish a relationship of trust, and in order to demonstrate that you really care about this person, like Mark was talking about, you don't just hammer him with truth. <laughs> Instead, you ask questions designed to build relationship and trust and hopefully, by the time you've worked through a few of these kinds of questions, you will have helped the person find... Go to the next slide. Oh, go to the next one. This right here. You'll help the person find that there's a point of tension in his or her thinking. A point of tension where what they say they believe doesn't really line up with how they're living. And we talked last week about a person who... Uh, who spoke at a college campus and he was a Christian and he spoke about how there's an absolute right or wrong. Well, he visited some students in a dorm room after that. This man's name was J.P. Moreland. He visited with some students in a room after that and, uh, and the students challenged him about what he had said, about that there is a God and there's, per there's uh, absolute truth and so on. And um, the student said, I don't believe that. I believe that what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. But you can't hold me to your system of beliefs and values. And this is when the philosopher, Moreland, stood up, unplugged the student's stereo, took it in his arms, and started to walk out with it. And the student said, wait a second, you can't do that. And the professor said, well, why not? Because you've just said that what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. And it's right for me that I steal your stereo. And the student said, no, 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 that's wrong. And so see what happened was he took advantage of that guy's point of tension. The point of tension between what they say they believe, human autonomy, everything happens by chance, and what they really deep down believe that there is a God, there are rights and wrongs, and you can't steal my stereo. So see, in, in the presupposition approach that we went through last week, it begins with questions, and hopefully the pointed questions will drive people to see that their worldviews really are pretty hollow, and they don't really work, nor do they answer the real questions of life that we all ask down deep in our hearts in the middle of the night when we wake up and can't sleep. 
All right? Now, here's what I'd like you to do. Before we move to the evidence approach, I want you to practice asking questions. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to do it for a few minutes. Steve, could you go back to the slide where the open and pointed questions were listed? There we go. I'm just going to leave those up there in case you need to cheat. And I'd like you to pair off with one other person. That's right, a pair is two. So pair off with one other person. And one of you needs to be the skeptic. And the other one is the apologist. And all you can do as the apologist is ask questions of the skeptic. Now, the skeptic, you can make up whatever your question is you, or your statement or your belief system. For example, you can say, well, uh, I don't believe there is absolute truth. That's an example. Uh, the skeptic could say, I don't believe the Bible to be true. Uh, you could say, I don't believe that there's a God. Whatever you want to say, one of you is the skeptic. You, you make up your own unbelief statement. And then I want the apologist to go through a series of open and then pointed questions as best you can just to kind of get a feel of it. I know you'll feel weird and like you're falling all over the place, but let's give it a try. All right? Take about two minutes and see how well you do. Pick which of you is the skeptic and which is the apologist. Okay, gang. Um, did it feel awkward? Yes, I'm sure it did. But the point of that little exercise is to hopefully, boy, you guys are really getting into this. Nobody's even listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> Who's winning? <laughs> okay. Hopefully that little exercise at least helped you to think about the issue of rather than defending myself, rather than getting angry, I need to ask questions, right? And just like we saw in the film clip uh, from The Matrix last week, maybe if you ask the right questions, somebody's going to end up taking the right pill. What, what color was the right pill? I forget. Red. Thank you, Michael. Somebody will take the red pill. All right. Now, Steve, could you go to, um, go to the next slide? Okay. The result that you're praying for with the questioning approach, the uh, presuppositional approach, the result that you're praying for is that the person you're talking to will ask you a question. A question like, well, how can you be so sure the Bible is from God, not just some book people made up? Or a question like, why do you believe the Bible to be true? What are you going to say? You've got a golden opportunity. You remember Mark said, make the most of every opportunity. And here it is. Somebody has just asked you, how can you be so sure that the Bible is from God and not from some human being? Here is where you've got to have a little bit of preparation through the evidence approach to know how you would answer that question. And so what we're going to do today is turn from the presupposition approach to the evidence approach for the rest of this class and I'd like to share with you at least 12 reasons why we believe the Bible to be true, that it's from God and not just some document that human beings made up. So we're going to start with number one and go through 12. Some of these I'm going to give quick treatment. Others I'll try to go into in a little more detail. But you've got it all here in case something's not clear. And please stop me with a hand-raised uh, question if you, ever, if you ever want to. All right. Reason number one, now just as a disclaimer, not any one of these by itself is probably going to do the trick. It's the cumulative effect of, of two or four or eight or twelve reasons that will be a powerful evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible. So number one, the Bible claims to be God's word to human beings. That is reason number one. The Bible claims to be God's word to human beings. Look at the notes that I've given you. Over 4,000 times in the Bible, you will find this phrase, this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. 4,000 times. In the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, you have very frequent claims in the Bible 
that the Bible is the Word of God. For instance, let's start with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have a few of these people that I've listed here, as well as many others, who claim again and again to be speaking the very words of God. You have Moses saying, God spoke all these words. You have David saying, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. You have Jeremiah saying that God told him to write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. And this is just three out of hundreds of illustrations. The, all of the prophets, for example, in the Old Testament were commissioned to say to the people exactly what God had said them to tell the people, not any more and not any less. And if they varied from that, they were going to be executed. I mean, it wasn't a good occupation to be a prophet because if you stepped out of line, God said, I reserve the right to take your life. You've got to be faithful. And the prophets is who wrote most of the Old Testament. All right? So they're not going to step out of line unless they wanted to die. The same is true in the New Testament. You have the apostles and others in the New Testament who, who readily looked at the Old Testament as God's Word. You have many quotations of the Old Testament. You have many allusions of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Number two, the apostles believed that they were writing the very words of God. Now look, either these guys were totally out of their minds or they were really sincere when they said that they were writing the words of God. For instance, let's take Paul as an example. Paul said, and I've got a few verses here, in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 he said, what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. In Galatians 1, he says, I received this by revelation from Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, he was very bold, Paul was, and he said, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, who would say that? I charge you before the Lord. That's the words of a, of a vow. And in the Bible, vows are taken very seriously. It's better not to vow, the Bible says, than to make a vow that you can't stand behind. And here's Paul making a vow and saying, I charge you before the Lord that you read my letter to all the churches. That's, that's because he knew that the letter wasn't just a letter from him. It was a letter from God through him. Uh, the Apostle John said some similar things. He said, this is the disciple, he's talking about himself, who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So a very clear claim to be writing the word of God. Number three, the apostles referred... I want to dwell on this one. This is kind of cool. You might not have ever noticed this before. Number three says the apostles referred to various parts of the Bible and called it Scripture. For instance, if you want to turn with me, I'm going to kind of fly through some Scriptures here. 1 Timothy 5.18, if you have a Bible. This might be kind of a, a fun little rabbit trail for some of you. 1 Timothy 5.18 is written by Paul. And uh, he says in that verse, the scripture says. Now, the word scripture is just another word for the Bible or for God's word. <laughs> what are you doing? You're taking pictures. Hmm, that's, that's really weird, Charles. Okay, so the word scripture he says, is another word for Bible, and it says in, ver in 1 Timothy 5.18, for the Scripture says, and here are two quotations. The first one is, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And the second quotation is, the worker deserves his wages. Now, the first quotation is from the book of Deuteronomy. The second quotation is from the book of Luke. The words of Jesus what does Paul tell Timothy that both are? Scripture. They're both Scripture. So this is an interesting verse because Paul, writing in the New Testament period, quotes from the Old Testament and from his own period and says these are both Scripture. So it's just simply an evidence that Paul believed that Jesus, at least, and Moses, who wrote Deuteronomy, were speaking the very words of God. That's what Scripture was. Um, another example of this is in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you want to flip over there. 2 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16 um, says, 
something very, very frank. I, I really like Peter's honesty. Peter was not ever one to mince his words or say something he didn't really mean. And here he is saying this. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the, what? Other scriptures. Now listen to what Peter is saying. He's talking about his friend Paul. Now it's kind of ironic that Peter would call him our dear friend because does anybody know what Paul had to do to Peter one time? Paul had to rebuke Peter for his hypocrisy. You can read about that in uh, the book of Galatians. But Peter so graciously says, our dear brother Paul writes some really hard things. Hard to understand these things are, says Peter. But they're scripture, just like the other scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are scripture. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the apostles, Peter and Paul at least, referred to various parts of the Bible and called it scripture. Number four, there are direct claims of inspiration by God. Direct claims in the Bible itself that say these words are inspired or breathed out by God. For instance, very well-known verse for many of you, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, an illustration that I give for this when I'm teaching the kids' classes, the communicants' classes, I say, have you ever walked out on a cold winter morning, walked over to your car, and breathed a little puff of air on the window like that? And then everybody wants to, what, write in it, right? Hello or wash me or something like that. That's an illustration of what the Bible is. It's God breathed it out, and human beings wrote exactly what he wanted them to write. So that's inspiration. And the Bible says that's what it is. It's inspired. And another one is there in Second Peter chapter 1. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now here's another one. Uh, what the Bible says, God says, and vice versa. Um, here's what I want you to do. At your table, I want you to look up Somebody at your table, look up Genesis 12, 1 and 3. Tell you what, I'll divide you, in fact. Everybody on this side of the room, you do letter A, or number 1, rather. You look up Genesis 12, 1 and 3, and compare it with Galatians 3, 8. Okay? And everybody from here over, you take number 2. Look up Psalm 2, verse 1 and compare it with Acts 4.25 and discuss what you find out at your table. You got it? Just discuss what you find out at your table. It's kind of interesting. Okay, have you figured it out yet? Who is not through? <laughs> the corner table is not through? <laughs> well, uh, too bad. We're going to stop right there. And let's have somebody over on this side, somebody on this side looked up Genesis 12 and compared it with Galatians 3. What is the point of that? What, what does it mean? Yeah, and what is the word used in Galatians that, yeah, in Galatians 3.8? In, Gal in Genesis 12, it says the Lord said this to Abraham, right? And Galatians 3 Scripture, yes. In Genesis 12, it says the Lord spoke to Abraham these words. And then in Galatians 3, it said the Scripture announced those words to Abraham. So it's a way of saying that what the Bible says, God says. And what God says, the Bible says. The Word of God claims to be true because it's from God. That's the point. Now, what, what about over here? You looked up... Um, what was it? Psalm 2, verse 1, and compared it with what it says in Acts. What, what's the point of that one? Tom? Yeah. That's right. Everybody hear that? Uh, in Psalm 2, it's David's words. He wrote the psalm. But in Acts 4, it says the Holy Spirit spoke them through David. 
So the point being what the Bible says God says and what God says the Bible says. Okay, now that is then several subpoints to our first evidence that the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Now, is that a sufficient argument? What's somebody going to say who says to you, well, why do you believe the Bible to be true? And you say, I believe the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it sounds like circular reasoning. Now, there's nothing wrong with circular reasoning when you have reason for believing the source. I don't know how many of you know this, but my son Michael pointed this out to me. There is a website devoted to establishing the fact that Paul is dead. Paul McCartney is dead. The Beatle, you remember this? Those of you who are my age and above, you remember the, the whole thing about Paul being dead? There is a group of people, I bet it's not a very big group, but they're convinced, they are still convinced that Paul McCartney is dead and he is now, the, real, the Paul McCartney that you see is really Neil Aspinall, no, no, Billy Shepard, who was Neil Aspinall, and guess who Brian, uh, Brian Epstein is, was, not Elvis, no, not the Antichrist, Don Knotts, <laughs> yes, Don Knotts, these people have very little else to do in life than to keep making this claim. Now, here's why I bring that up. Here's a group of people claiming something that you and I laugh at. That's laughable. How in the world can that be? But what if someone claims to say that this is the Word of God because God says it's the Word, and you know something more about the source of that information than you do about Paul being dead? That's why I want to go to number two. Reason number two for believing the Bible to be God's Word is that God is a God of truth. He would not, indeed he cannot, mislead us. And here you see a number of verses that we who are Christians anyway believe these verses to be saying something about God. He is not a God who tells lies. And so if you know that about God and then God says, this is my word, then you're probably going to give it a little more credence than a mere claim that Paul is dead in some website. All right, so that's number two. Again, we're not there yet, but we're building our case. Number three, Jesus taught, and this is a very powerful evidence. Jesus taught that the scriptures, that is, for him, they, they were the Old Testament scriptures, are true. Now look, most of the skeptics out there that we speak with are able to know, able to say that Jesus was a good man. A lot of them say Jesus was a teacher sent from God, that he was a perfect person, that he did all kinds of good things and performed very many miracles. Well, if you can show your friend that that Jesus that you respect had a certain opinion about the Old Testament scriptures, it might really help him to see that the Bible is God's word. Let me show you a few evidences of this. For one thing, Jesus quoted, and he viewed the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God. Do you remember when he was tempted? The devil said, here, have some bread. Here, jump off of this temple. Here, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. What was Jesus' response each time? It is written. Jesus quoted the Bible in his worst period of temptation. And in fact, in one of those instances, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus valued the words from God. Secondly, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, another word for the Old Testament, until all is accomplished. How do you spell dessert? Somebody spell dessert. D-E-S-S-E-R-T. How do you spell desert? One S. Uh, have you ever seen those two mixed up? I have a lot. What are you, you going to have for dessert? And it's really desert. And uh, I, I drove through the desert, and it was really a dessert. But here's my point. J yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, that's good, Jerry. Thanks. That's good. That's helpful. <laughs> Ah, 
I like Jerry's better. But here's the point. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus says in Matthew 5, every letter is important. Change one letter and you, you stop having the word of God is what Jesus was convinced of. In fact, in the Hebrew uh, alphabet, he, he was talking about a little, little tiny mark called a yod. It was a, it was a consonant in the Hebrew alphabet. And Jesus was saying, you don't get rid of one yod or else you change the very words of God. Jesus had a high view of the Bible. Um, look at uh, the, the next one in line. Not, I don't know how to label these. The, the next one says, he himself claimed to be speaking the truth. Many times through the scriptures of the, of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see him say, truly, truly, I say to you, or I tell you the truth, or some such thing. He believed the stories of the Old Testament. You ever thought of this? That, that if Jesus didn't believe the stories of the Old Testament, he sure told a lot of lies, because he kept referring to these things like creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah. Fancy that. Jesus believed the world was covered by flood. Or at least he said he did. So is he a liar? You know, or is he a fool? I think, I think he's the Lord. And he believed in Lot's wife. He believed in the healing of Naaman the Syrian. He believed the story of Jonah. Now that one gets trashed all the time, doesn't it? Imagine a human being being swallowed by a big fish. Did you know that actually a historical account of a sailor being swallowed by a whale is uh, documented? Sure enough, you look it up on the internet, there are instances where sailors have been thrown overboard and were swallowed by whales. Came out bleached white because of the gastric juices of the whale. So it's not a totally stupid story, but Jesus certainly believed it happened. Yeah. Good. Yeah. He thought it was a pretty important story, didn't he? Good. Thank you, Cam. Um, so... There you go. Um, I'm going to run on to the, to the fourth, okay? Let's go to letter D. I'll leave those others with you there. Letter D, now the fourth evidence, the fourth line or argument that the Bible is God's word. The Bible contains over 2,000 predictions that have been fulfilled. Now, this is fascinating. This is really fascinating. Because if, if time permitted, and I think I'm not, I'm not going to do this, I was actually going to have every table look up one of these, but I think you can do this. You've got a list I put here of 24 predictions. There are actually over 300. Someone gave a count of 330 predictions in the Old Testament about the Messiah, and some of them are just too close to be made up or to be chance. Uh, for instance, uh, down there in number 17, prophecy number 17, says that Jesus would be, or the Messiah, would be pierced in his hands and feet. That comes from Psalm 22. And that he would be, uh, a spear would go into him. That's from Zechariah 12. Uh, did you know that it was prophesied? Look at number, 20, uh, number 19. Number 19 says that Jesus, or the Messiah rather, would pray for his persecutors what did Jesus pray from the cross? Yeah, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Um, number 22 is interesting. It's prophesied in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be buried with the rich in his death. And does anybody know whose tomb Jesus was given? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich, a wealthy man, yes. Um, many others that are just fascinating. I wish I could spend, we could do a whole class on prophecy but look at what I say in number 25. I found this quotation from Francis Reidenauer, and he said, Computations using the science of probability on just eight of these prophecies, eight out of the 330, show that the chance that somebody could have fulfilled all eight prophecies is 10 to the 17th power, or one in 100 quadrillion. <laughs> now, there's a guy who probably didn't have anything better to do either than to come up with that. I don't know how you come up to that. That's something for you math and physics questions, huh? It's fairly easy statistics, really. That's cool. Thanks. That's interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm glad there are people like that in the world because I'm not one of them. 
<laughs> That's cool. Uh, in other words, Jesus fulfilled not just eight of them, but 330 things. And again, that this is something that is combined with everything else, powerful evidence for the Bible being God's Word. Now, now other prophecies in the Bible are about these things that I've listed here next. Not just about the coming of the Messiah, but look at these other events that are prophesied in the Old Testament that came true later. For instance, that Israel would be in servitude in Egypt for 400 years. That was prophesied in Genesis 15. The decline and fall of Israel in Deuteronomy 28. Number three is interesting. You should do this little study sometime. There was a prophecy given that whoever were, would end up rebuilding Jericho, there would be a curse upon him. That's found in Joshua 6:26. You remember the city of Jericho, right? The walls came a tumbling down. Well, God's pronounced a curse on that city and said, if anybody tries to rebuild this city, they're going to be under my curse. Well, in 1 Kings 16, a fellow by the name of H-I-E-L, Hiel of Bethel, did in fact try to rebuild Jericho, and he in fact died and came under God's curse. So that's kind of an interesting prophecy that came true. Number four is especially fascinating. The name of the Persian king, Cyrus, is actually given 200 years before he shows up on the scene as the very man who would be who would uh, protect Israel and restore them to their nation and let them rebuild their temple after the exile. That's in Isaiah 44 and 45. And you see many others there that are quite fascinating. Um, so, there you go. Number, number four, in other words, if I could summarize, is that there are prophecies or predictions in the Bible, some about Jesus and some about other world events that did, in fact, come true. And this is just some of the best known. Number five, I'm rushing forward, I know, but I want to hasten to finish. Number five of why we believe the Bible will be God's word, historical references in the Bible have been confirmed by archaeology. I read somewhere by a, a man I trust that archaeology is one of the Christian's best friends because more and more, these people over there in the sweating to death, digging holes in Palestine, more and more every day, every month, every year, are finding sites previously unknown by historians only told about in the Bible. And some of these quotes from some noted archaeologists might be kind of interesting to you. For instance, Nelson Gleck said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. All right, so that's archaeology. Number six, now we turn to science. Um, the Bible makes scientifically accurate statements that predate their discoveries by 2,000 or more years. And here are a few examples. Have you ever read through Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, where God gives all of these rules about cleanliness, washing, and staying away from germs, and so on? Do you know it wasn't until 1840 that science said, oh, you better wash your hands when you're operating on somebody? Thomas, you're a physician. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that one. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah? I remember those scenes in the movie Gone with the Wind, you know, where they're laying these injured, maimed soldiers out there and just operating on them right there in the heat and everything. And that's an example of what you're saying. They didn't observe sanitary rules at all. But here they are in the Old Testament in which God is saying, yes, you know, there is such a thing as bacterial infection, and here's how you avoid it. So... Other things, the ocean floor, it says in the Bible, contains valleys and mountains. That wasn't known until many hundreds of years later, thousands rather, um, that the ocean contains underwater springs. Uh, the fourth example, the wisdom of letting farmland lie idle periodically is, a, is in the Bible because every seven years in the nation of Israel, they, they had to let the land go. It was the year of Jubilee, or not, the, the Sabbath year, the sabbatical year. And so they let the land lie out there idle. 
And now agriculturalists worldwide recognize the wisdom of such a thing. And then Genesis 1.1, you've heard about the Big Bang Theory. Well, there was a Big Bang. It was when God said, let there be light. And suddenly there was something out of nothing. That's what a Big Bang is. And now scientists are saying there must have been a Big Bang. There must have been a beginning. And so on. And on March 12th, Hugh Ross, a noted scientist, is going to be here to talk with us about the whole science in the Bible thing. Creation, the age of the earth, old earth, young earth, etc. It's going to be a great day. Okay, let's move on to number seven. I think we're doing all right on time, but I'm going to hurry. The Bible writers, the biblical writers, are portrayed as people of character and integrity. Now, this is just kind of an argument by inference because as you read through these Bible books, you, you, you hear about the writers saying, tell the truth. Be a person of integrity. Okay, how, would those, how could those people get off saying such things if they were making it all up themselves? See, they claim to be men and women of high integrity, and many of them even paid a high price for being truthful. You know who I'm talking about here? Paul was imprisoned, beaten, rejected, scorned, eventually martyred. Tradition holds that Paul's head was cut off on the Appian Way or something like that. Peter, legend tells us, was also martyred. He was crucified head down. That's what tradition says. Why would they pay that kind of price to be tortured, imprisoned, chained, etc., if what they were writing was false? I mean, I just... I think that's a powerful argument. I don't want to base my whole life and even my death on stuff I think is a lie. I'm going to base my life and death on what I know to be true. And I think the Bible writers would have done likewise. Number eight is the life-changing power of the Bible to change lives. I'd like everybody to open your Bible to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And uh, we're going to do a quick little table exercise here. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. And, uh, in fact, what I'll do is I'll read this from the microphone so everybody gets to hear it. And what I would like to do, this may be hard to do in a short amount of time, but argument number eight is that this book is responsible for changing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of human lives down through the history. And this psalm teaches the power of the Word of God. It says in Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7, that the law of the Lord, simply another way of saying the Bible, the law of the Lord is perfect. Notice that it revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Now, you notice there a number of synonyms for the Bible. The law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, etc., and you notice a list of different things the Bible does for human beings. Just take about three minutes. And what I'd like for someone to do, at least one of you at each table, just whoever's more brave, I'd like you to share a little word of testimony about how the Bible has impacted your life in a way that might be similar to Psalm 19, or it can be something different. How has God changed your life through the Bible. Would, would one of you at each table be able to give a little testimony to everybody else at your table? Go ahead and do that right now. Step out there, be brave, share a word of thanks. All right, let's wrap that up. That's exciting that there were so many people who had something to say. And I, I would add an amen. You know, everybody's got a story to tell. And I'd be willing to bet that most of them, if the story goes long enough, most of them will eventually get around to something that God has said in this book right here. 
And, you know, there have been people down through the ages who have given their lives to see to it that you and I have this book right here on our tables. And they must have known something about that book uh, that makes it so precious. And it is powerful. It's like a double-edged sword. It does things to our lives. Well, let's go on to number nine. I love this next one, and I wish we could have a whole class on this one, too. The Bible has been amazingly well-preserved over the years. Think about this. There are 66 books in there, 40 authors of diverse occupations, written over 1,500 years in three languages and over three continents in a variety of literary styles, and yet it tells one story, a story about God who sent his son Jesus as the ultimate solution to human sin. That's really all it's about. It's one long love letter. What if you took, uh, as I've written on your sheet there, what if you took a bunch of doctors? Now, doctors, we love them. Thomas, we love you. But uh, let's just suppose that we took 40 doctors, and uh, these doctors lived over a course of 1,500 years, and you asked them in different languages to write a book on hundreds of different topics. What kind of unity would there be there? I mean, medical science itself has changed uh, quite a bit, you know, over 1,500 years. So I think you would have a a lot of problems in that book, but not so with the Bible. Look at this. It's been burned, banned, systematically eliminated, criticized, abused, and hated more than any other book, but only to thrive. There are more of them around than ever. A couple of historical things I think you'd find interesting. Back in A.D. 303, the emperor's name was Diocletian. He decreed that churches would be destroyed and the Bibles that were around would be destroyed by fire. Over a burned Bible, Diocletian built a monument on which he wrote. Anybody know how to pronounce Latin? Do it real loud. (laughs) Anyway, the name Christian is extinguished is what that means. But 25 years later, Diocletian was dead and the new emperor Constantine commissioned 50 copies of the Bible to to be prepared at government expense. That's pretty cool. And uh, many of you have heard this one about Voltaire. This is a fairly well-known story. Back in 1776, he predicted, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. And here's the epilogue to that. After his death, the press is used to print his books, printed Bibles, and Voltaire's house was used by the Geneva Bible Society to distribute Bibles. (laughs) A a hundred years from the time of Voltaire's prediction, the first edition of his work sold for 11 cents. But the British government paid the Tsar of Russia half a million dollars for an ancient Bible manuscript. God gets the last laugh (laughs) on Voltaire. And you already know this one. It's been translated into more languages than any other piece of literature. Hey, somebody from Wycliffe. There are several of you here. How many languages can you tell us? Is the Bible now available in, at least in part, if not in whole? Forrest, do you have that information at the tip of your tongue? (laughs) John, Annette? Wow. There are about six uh, six thousand eight hundred languages in the world that are spoken that are enough different from each other where they where they can't understand a uh, a, a, a different language. And of those, there's still about twenty five hundred that don't have a, a Bible translation project begun in them. So all the rest either have a completed scripture or have portions of scripture. And, and the uh, current goal of Wycliffe is to get the other 2,500 uh, languages started, a, a language project started by 2025. Great. Thanks, Outstanding. Yeah, that's, that's worth an applause. <coughs> um, let's move on a little bit because I want to say a couple of things before the time has run out. Uh, the transmission of the canon. Now, some of you might not know that word, canon. Notice it's C-A-N, one N, not two. It's not a boom, that kind of canon. A jot and tittle? <laughs> yeah, right. Same thing. It's C-A-N-O-N. It's simply a technical word speaking of the 66 books that we call the Bible. The story of how 
that's been handed down over time is so fascinating. Everybody here ought to own a book called The Story of the Bible or How We Got Our Bible. There are several of them out there. You really should read it to be inspired. The Old Testament seems to have been fixed as a group of books by 200 B.C., and the New Testament, at the latest, by A.D. 367. There was a, an Easter letter that was circulated by Athanasius, a bishop, and he listed all 27 books of the New Testament in that letter. Now, look at this next point. It's very important that we all be honest about this. And some Christians are sort of taken aback by this. But we don't possess the original manuscripts. However, they were painstakingly copied and preserved and handed down by the Jewish people called scribes. There was a tribe of them called the Masoretes, and they were ridiculously anal in their copying procedures. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to read a sentence, and I'd like you to write it down on a piece of paper. Okay, I'm going to read you a sentence. You've probably heard this sentence before. Are you ready? Okay, here's what we are now. I'm a priest, and you're a bunch of scribes. And this is the way it would work. See, they didn't have computers and IBMs and copying machines back then. What you had was a priest who stood up in the front of the room and a lot of scribes in the room who were employed for the sole purpose of making copies of biblical manuscripts. And he would read it out loud. And they would sit there and copy everything they read or or heard. So here's the sentence. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. I'll say it again. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. All right, now, we're going to pretend that I just read to you some of the Bible, but instead I read you this sentence that many of you have heard. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. As you look at the words you just wrote, can anybody see a word that maybe could legitimately be misspelled? What? There? Okay, good. Somebody in the, in the room could have spelled it T-H-E-R-E. That's right. What about the word aid? Sometimes you see that as A-I-D-E. All right, here is what would happen with these Masoretes. At the end of the day... Now, you've just been sitting there all day long writing Bible verses that were read to you out loud. At the end of the day, the priest would say, All right, my scribes, my faithful and true scribes, I have counted the letters and spaces in all of the words that I've read out loud to you today, and the total number is, and he would give it, and the scribes would have to sit there and count all of the letters and spaces that they'd written that day, or some period of the day anyway, and if the count didn't match up, you would take your entire parchment, whatever you wrote it on, and throw it in the trash basket. You wasted your day that day. And then the, the, the priest would say, not only have I counted all of the letters in the, and the spaces in what I've read, but the middle letter that you should have written on your paper today is a Aleph, he might say. The middle letter. And you would have to go back and count again and come to the middle letter. And if your middle letter wasn't the middle letter, once again you took everything you'd written and thrown it, you'd have to throw it in the trash basket. You'd wasted your day. Like in the sentence I gave you, there were 68 letters and spaces, and the, third, and the uh, middle letter was the letter T. should have been. Now, if somebody had written A-I-D-E instead of A-I-D, you see, you'd be wrong. And your copy was no good. Uh, T-H-E-I-R, T-H-E-R-E. That wouldn't help you, but it might. See? T-H-E-Y, apostrophe R-E. Very true. And also, over time, what if a scribe got kind of lazy and he didn't want to write every letter? He might have said N-O-W apostrophe S. Now's. Now's the time. Okay, here's the way it worked back in these days. The Masoretes scribes, generations would pass. And the priest standing up would read a copy of a copy of a copy of a manuscript. And the scribes would copy the copy of the copy of the copy of the manuscript. Don't you think that over time, 
There might have been an AIDE that would creep in instead of an AID. But let me ask you this. What's the difference, right? That's the nature of the differences among the various manuscripts that we have. They are misspelled words like proper names, sometimes vary from copy to copy, but at hardly any time at all is there a, an, a variation of any significance. It's stuff like now's the time instead of now is the time. So look at what I've written on your sheet. We have over 5,300 Greek New Testament manuscripts, 8,000 Latin New Testament manuscripts, and over 1,000 New Testament manuscripts in other languages. Compare that to what we have of Plato and Aristotle. Now, do you ever see in the morning newspaper somebody write, there is doubt about the veracity of the writings of Plato. I don't think I've ever read that. However, I had religion professors in my college that said there is doubt about the veracity of the Word of God. Can you believe that? It was a Baptist university, and they said, well, we have doubt about it. We're not sure this is the Word of God. Well, why not criticize Plato or Aristotle, of whom we only have seven and five manuscripts, as opposed to the hundreds and thousands of manuscripts we have from the Bible? It's just kind of interesting to me that that happens. And then look at number five, archaeological discoveries. I've already referred to archaeology once, but let's do this real quick. I want, you, I want you to notice these stories. There was a fellow by the name of Tischendorf who back in 1844 was visiting a monastery and he noticed a basket full of old parchments about to be burned. They turned out to be 129 pages of a Greek translation of the Old Testament dating back to 350 A.D. And then the more they dug up, they found other Old Testament and New Testament texts, including, and some of you more of a more scholarly bent might recognize, Codex Sinaiticus. It's an old, reliable, complete copy of the Greek New Testament dating back to 350 or 400 A.D. Now that is just a couple hundred, 300 years away from when it was written, the original, you know. And then there was this fellow by the name of Chester Beatty, sort of an Indiana Jones type. Back in the year 1930, he was rummaging around in the uh, markets out in London and bought some old papyri from an Egyptian antiques dealer. When he took it back to his apartment and started looking at it, it turned out to be Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts dating back to A.D. 200, parts of nine Old Testament books and 15 New Testament books. And then, of course, we get to the whole matter of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A Bedouin shepherd boy was walking down by the Dead Sea one day, noticing the Qumran caves up in the hills, and like any boy does, throwing rocks up in there to see if he could nail one of the caves. Only one time he threw a rock and heard something crash. And he climbed up there and looked in there, and there were all of these jars the year was 1947. It turned out to be the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contained 11 caves producing 400 manuscripts dating back to 150 B.C., including parts of every Old Testament book except Esther. Now notice that, that before that find, the oldest manuscripts we owned for the Old Testament came from 1000 A.D. So the Dead Sea Scrolls was an amazing discovery. A providence of God, no doubt, because that took our knowledge of the Old Testament manuscripts back to 150 to 200 B.C., which is just amazing. Well, 10, 11, and 12 are on your sheet. Number 10, argument number 10, the uniqueness of the Bible's message argues for its truthfulness. When you read through the Bible, you'll find things said there that are nowhere else said, like the fact that we're dead in sin and that we cannot work our way to God. If you've ever compared Christianity to other world religions, I believe I can safely say that the key difference is that all of the other world religions talk about how we can do something to earn our way into God's favor. Christianity is unique in saying you can't. You're dead. You need a savior. So, and there are other unique things the Bible teaches. Argument number 11, the truth claims of scripture were corroborated by miracles reported by eyewitnesses, not the least of which, of course, was the resurrection of Christ. And finally, look, you're talking to your friend, and, and she says, okay, those are 11 amazing arguments, but I still, I still can't buy it. Well, you know why? 
because ultimately number 12 has to happen. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. I remember clearly the day in 1975 I was sitting on my dorm room bed and my friend, the born-again Christian, was trying to tell me that I was going to hell and that I needed to believe in Jesus. And I will never forget suddenly in my mind saying, Mike Osborne, listen to him. He might be right. And that day marked the change in my life known as conversion. It was an illuminating moment. It was like the light bulb suddenly came on. And many of you can probably tell a similar story. When the light bulb just comes on and suddenly you're not questioning it anymore. See, if your friend hears all 11 of them and still says, I don't believe it, then a God thing needs to happen. And it can. But what you've seen today is, I think, enough reason for us to say that the only thing keeping someone from believing that the Bible is God's Word after going through all of this is that our hearts are dark and they need to be illumined by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that you cannot do, no matter how good your apologism is, <laughs> your apologetics. You can't argue anybody into the kingdom, but what you can do is you can be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that lies within you. Now, next week, Mark Bates is actually going to be your teacher. Now, Mark is a good apologist, and he's going to tackle one of the questions that is on the list that you guys came up with on the first Sunday. I don't know what it is. He hasn't told me yet. But come back next week, and Mark's going to do that because I'm preaching next week. So we're trading, trading spaces, I think, is the TV show. All right, let's bow for prayer. Sorry I couldn't allow a lot more question and answer. If you have a question, please see me afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, um, first of all, I want to thank you for the many faithful men and women down through time who have given their lives so that we could own an NIV, uh, TEV, NLT, KJV, NASB, whatever the translation, Lord, thank you that you have seen to it that your words were preserved and handed down through time through the faithful life and death of many, many people. Lord, may we today respect and admire your word more, and may we love it and eat it like honey from the honeycomb. May we, God, look forward to reading your love letter to us because we so desperately need to be reminded that you really do love us and you loved us so much you sent Jesus. Lord, would you also give us a heart for the many in our world who, even when confronted by the evidence, still refuse to believe. Help us, Lord, to love them. Help us to ask them questions and help us to be prepared with an answer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.